2 Thessalonians. I was able to go out this past week to the graveside uh, for Kay, and they, uh, for those of you that know them, uh, Andy sends his love, and as well as the Ots, and just continue to pray for them as they go through this time of grieving, and praise the Lord, she's with her Lord and Savior, and uh, we're just thankful for that, and uh, they look forward to seeing those of you who will be heading out there next month for the memorial service, but... Uh, right now we're going to turn our hearts to God's Word, Second Thessalonians, and uh, we're in chapter 1. It's our sixth message in this small little letter that Paul had written to this brand new church, and uh, it's the second letter that he wrote, and he, in both letters, as you read through those, you can find that he never really condemns them, he never really even rebukes them. Uh, he wants to encourage them because they were coming under severe uh, persecution, and so he, in Second Thessalonians, he begins to bring up the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he wants us to understand that um, even though God is a God of love, we would agree with that, he's also a holy God, he's also a just God, he's a righteous God. And today, unfortunately, in our society, we're so used to hearing about the love and the mercy and the grace of God that when we hear about the vengeance and the wrath of God, it shocks us. And we can't believe what we're reading sometimes in the scriptures. In fact, I think today we get so used to mercy that we think of God's divine justice as being what we would call unfair, and you hear this all the time. People ask questions about, well, what about the people that never heard? What about this? What about that? And, uh, or if something happens in somebody's life, well, how, how tragic that little baby died or that child was wounded or severely injured in a car wreck. How could God, a good God, allow something like that to happen? How dare you, God? And they point their finger in the air and they shake their fist at God because they don't understand that our God is a holy God. He's completely righteous. He's completely... Uh, just in everything he does. He can't be anything but that. But today, because there's no, the scripture tells us there's no fear of God in the eyes of men, and we see that all around us, don't we? I mean, just look at what they're doing. Um, there's no fear of God, there's no fear of his judgment, and really there's no fear of hell in general. And today, uh, people in our society... Um, You'd have to say this, they underestimate the horror of sin, they make light of sin, and thereby that's why they cannot comprehend the horrors of hell. When you talk to people about hell, they just, well, that's not the God that I, you know, my God's a God of love. But the Bible tells us very clearly at his return, at the return of Christ, and it will take place, just as sure as we're sitting here today, that Paul the subject here in verses 6 to 10, which we've read several times, so we're not going to read it this morning. You can read that on your own. I'm sure you're very familiar with it up to this point. But it's talking about the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've been talking about this, and we have come to understand that um, last week we looked at why he's coming back. He's coming back for two reasons, to carry out vengeance, to carry out retribution, it says that in verse 8, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
But then he's also coming to provide relief for those that know Christ, relief for the church. And so we title this series here, The Joys and Sorrows of God's Final Judgment or Christ's Coming. And it's important that we understand that he will return and he will be revealed. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, the Bible tells us that he will deal out eternal punishment to all unbelievers, but he will also share his eternal glory with us who are the saints, with us who have committed their lives to Christ, who have forsaken the way of sin and repented, means simply to change your direction of living, you're changing your mind, you're, you're living for yourself, you're living for your sin, and instead of continuing down that path, what do you do? You turn and you look to the cross because you realize that you have a debt that you could never pay and he paid it for you. And so you have that trans, transaction take place in your heart where God opens your eyes and you realize that, look, I could go to the church for the rest of my life. I could take communion for the rest of my life every day. I could go to confession. I could do this. I could do that. I could help the poor. I could feed the hungry. It doesn't matter. All those things will not get you to heaven. The only thing that will give you that pass to eternal glory with our God and creator is what do you do with Jesus Christ? Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say I'm one of many ways. (laughs) No, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Very clear. It's not a shell game. God doesn't play games with things like this because the eternal destiny of people's souls is at stake. And so in our previous messages, we looked at, first of all, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in his mighty power and glory, and we talked about that, and we talked about that really means the the appearing of someone who they have not known, someone who is hidden to them, and we talked about how Jesus was veiled in his first coming, but he will be unveiled at his second coming. And matter of fact, it even goes on to say there in our text that the, Jesus, the coming of Jesus Christ is described as, first of all, he's coming from heaven because that's where he is. Christ resides in heaven today. Now, we know he's God, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's all those things. But right now, the Bible says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is described as where he's coming from, from heaven, and he will be coming with his mighty angels and in flaming fire. This is not a description, as we said, of what he does, but it's, it's really a description of what he is in his appearing. And so we looked at what this was last week. What is this final vengeance? What does this mean? It means it's full punishment. It is based on God's holy character. So there's nothing that we can point to God's carrying out his wrath. Like in verse 9, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's the penalty. That's what this is. And you say, a penalty for what? A penalty for their sin. The Bible says we all have sinned in a myriad of ways. We all fall short of God's glory. And we all need a Savior. We all need someone who can stand between us and God, and say, I am covering this person's sins. If you're here today and you say, well, I don't have any sins, you're, you're deceived. 
It doesn't take too long. We could follow you around with a camera and a, a movie, you know, a video, and, and, and it, sooner or later you'd sin. Okay, you may not sin here this morning, even though you may be sinning in your heart and your mind right now, even as you look at me, but we would never know, right? But God knows. That's the important part. And it doesn't take a myriad of sins. It takes one to disqualify you, disqualify you from being perfect. And Jesus himself answered the question, well, who can go to heaven? Only those who are perfect. Only those who are righteous, completely. You can't have a little sin. All of your sins have to be dealt with. And so that's why Christ came to die on the cross. But why are we, pen- why are we penalizing these sinners for their sins against God? And their sins against God are endless. In Romans chapter 2, um, 4 and 5, it says that they're accumulating judgment. They're, they're accumulating sin building up righteous uh, recompense against all sin when the penalty is paid finally. Um, That word punishment really is a a word that means righteous punishment, righteous penalty. There's no other way around it. He's doing what is right. God always does what is right. Right. And Jesus, as the judge and as the executioner, will carry out God's judgment and wrath. Now, this is, this is a terrifying truth, if you think about it. Uh, this is a truth that we don't like to talk about. I'd much rather talk to you about the grace and the mercy of God and, boy, the joy of being a Christian. Uh, trust me, a lot of preachers don't like to preach about this. Uh, but it's very dangerous not to talk about it. You, know, you can't just gloss over certain scriptures that talk about the wrath and the punishment that God will mete out perfectly in his time. You can't gloss over those only to focus on God's love and forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. You have to teach the whole counsel of God. And you say, well, why is it so important? Well, if you turn back in your Old Testaments to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, this is why this is so important. And this is why, frankly, we're spending so much time on this. You're saying, all right, get, get on with it. All right, we're only in verse 7 or 8. Okay? But this is important. Because you don't hear these messages today. You hear messages on how you can have your best life now and how God wants you happy and, and wealthy and, and well and all this stuff. You don't hear about the holiness of God anymore. You don't hear about his judgment, his pending judgment and I think that there's going to be a lot of people who are held account who are pastors and teachers and even Christians who are not sharing this information with people. And the, way I, the reason I say that, look at Ezekiel chapter 33. All the way in the Old Testament there, it's very dangerous not to talk about these characteristics of God. God speaks to Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at what he says in verse uh, 6 there. But if the watchman, the watchman is someone who is, the, the wall, the, the cities back then were surrounded by walls. There were a defense mechanism. And there'd be usually one or two gates that were closed because they didn't want marauders coming into their cities. And so you would put watchmen on the walls, these high walls of the city. And if, being a watchman, you could see for miles So you could see a dust cloud coming if you knew an army was going to attack. 
And that's what the purpose of the watchman really was. And look at what it says in verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, they would carry a trumpet because they would have to announce if someone was going to attack the city. Kind of like a, you know, a fire alarm or a burglar alarm. When that goes off, what happens? The authorities respond. Well, when this watchman who would stand on the wall, they would have different watches throughout the night and the day. They would always have watchmen on the wall. And they would have them in all different directions. And if anybody was coming and they saw somebody coming and they couldn't figure out who it was, maybe they thought it was a threat, they would blow this trumpet. And that would set on alert the army that was within the city walls. And they would prepare to do battle. Well, if the watchman sees the sword coming, it says, and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned. In other words, if he's up there, you know, eating a hot dog, sleeping or something, you know, I, I didn't see him coming, sorry. You know, it's not an excuse. This is your one job. You're a watchman, for goodness sakes. You, you can't sleep. You can't miss the enemy approaching. That would be disastrous in and of itself. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying he inadvertently fell asleep. He's saying he sees them coming, but he doesn't warn them. He does not warn the people. So that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them. God is very specific here in his word. Anyone. It's just one person dies. Because the watchman isn't responsible to carry out his duty. That person is taken away in his iniquity. In other words, if that person dies, well then he dies... But look at what it says. His blood I will require at the watchman's hand. In other words, you had a responsibility. You had one responsibility as the watchman on the wall. Spiritually speaking, preachers, we as Christians, we're all watchmen on the wall. Are we not? God has opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We understand that Christ is coming. There's a pending judgment. There's a pending wrath from a holy God that's going to fall upon this world. One day, and half the church is watching it. And it's not that the church fell asleep. They're wide awake. (laughs) And they see the enemy coming. They know what's going to happen. But they're unwilling to share that information with people. The reason being, maybe they might be offended by it. Maybe they're asleep and he doesn't want to blow his trumpet and wake everybody up. It'd be an inconvenient truth to to have at 2 a.m. But what's worse, you die because the watchman's not willing to tell you? Look at what he says in verse 7. So you, son of man, that's kind of the title for Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. In other words, Ezekiel, you're to watch out for Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Notice, Ezekiel was a representative of God's truth, of God himself. That's what we are, believers. That's what we are, Christians. We are called to be in this world, to be salt, to be light. We're called to be what? Representatives of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to hide in our churches with the doors closed. Oh, the, the world, we've got to keep it out. No. People get... Get this so confused sometimes when it talks about, you know, in the gates of Hades <laughs> will not prevail against the church that God has established. The idea is, is that not that they won't come in, 
The idea is, is that Hades can't keep the church confined. Because we know the truth. We know what it means to be lost. We know what it means to be stuck in our sin. And that should compel us to get the word out. To sound the trumpet. Because we're giving a warning, not from us. This isn't our opinion. This is God's word. This is, this is God's truth. And so he says in verse 8 of Ezekiel 33, If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But look, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, in other words, he doesn't listen to you. You're trying to warn people. You're out there trying to tell people about God's pending wrath and the salvation that he offers freely through Christ. But he doesn't, he doesn't turn. He doesn't turn from his way. That person shall die in his iniquity, just like the other person. But you will have delivered your soul. Wow. That's very serious, my friends. That's not something we should just kind of put on the back burner in the back shelf. If we are not warning sinners, then this scripture says their blood will be on our hands. Now what does that, this, exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that. It, it, that could never happen. But it does mean that, that there's a responsibility that we're to be fulfilling, and if we're not fulfilling that responsibility as watchmen on the wall, as we're not sharing the gospel, as we're not telling people about the pending wrath of God that's going to fall on this world and pointing them to Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, if we're not doing that, we could come into serious discipline, my friends, from the Lord. It may even cost you your life. This is how serious this is. And yet, back to Second Thessalonians, how common it is, really, for us, even as a church, to speak about these kind of things. I don't like to talk about this. You know, I'd, I'd rather talk about some, something else that's a lot more lighthearted. <laughs> but we have to. Why? Because we're commanded to. We can't just skip over it. So what is this? It's the vengeance of the Lord. It's divine vengeance, retribution. It's a time for God's wrath to come and, and for sinners to pay the penalty under the wrath of God. And you say, last week we said, well, that was kind of what it was. Well, why? Why, why does this have to happen in verse 6 tells us, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, since indeed God considers it just. End of, end, of, end, of, end of the sentence. But, 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 no, no buts. You know, we can't stand here in the face of a holy God and say, but that doesn't sound fair. I don't think it's just, God. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter. I mean, who are we to question a holy God? Notice it says, since indeed God considers it just. What? This wrath, this, this impending vengeance. 
He doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to explain why Jesus would come back and do this. It's good enough to say, you know, no, God thinks it's the right thing to do. That's it. That's all you get. In Job chapter 37, verse 23, Elihu, one of Job's Job's friends, says this, and he was correct when he stated this. He says, the Almighty, he is great in power, justice, and abundant in righteousness. He will not violate. See, never in your wildest imagination can you ever create a scenario where God will be unjust, or God will be unfair, or God will be unrighteous. And so this scenario is the vengeance of God upon sinners who have not turned to his son. And it's devastating. The punishment is eternal. But it's a just punishment. It's a just penalty. It's the correct punishment. It matches the crime. There's no maliciousness here to be seen. Because we serve a holy God, a perfect God. It is righteous vengeance, and it's coming from the one righteous God to sinners who have, what have they done? Well, they've lived in disobedience, they've lived in unbelief, they've lived in rebellion against him. That's what the scripture says. See, this isn't more than what sinners deserve. We can't look at a holy God and say, well, you shouldn't have to punish him that long. Maybe just 10,000 years would be good enough. No, he says for all eternity. If you die today without Christ, you will be ushered into a Christless eternity. And the Bible says that's a place of fire, it's a place of wrath, it's a place of gnashing of teeth. Things don't die there. You're not just going to go into, you know, uh, non-existence. You're going to live on for eternity. Those who know Christ... Eternity with Christ forever in glory. Those who do not, those who do not look to Christ, those who are trying to figure it out on their own, trying to work their way to heaven, if they die before they turn to Christ, they will be ushered into an eternal darkness, utter darkness, it says, for all eternity. And we can't say that's not fair. Like I said earlier, we have the underestimation in our own minds of the horror of sin. We think that somehow when we sin, God looks lightly on it. Somehow, well, I didn't really hurt anybody. You know, I know the Bible says I shouldn't be doing this, but, you know, I kind of kept it to myself. I compartmentalized it. We like to do that today with our sins. And we downplay the idea that that's an affront to a holy God. We play games with it. We underestimate the horror of sin, and therefore we cannot even comprehend, begin to comprehend, how horrible hell will be one day. And because of that, the the church just kind of lays back in the armchairs of grace, saying, well, you know, I'm a Calvinist, so I think God's going to take care of it. I don't have to do anything. No. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign in our salvation, the God, the, 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 the scriptures clearly support the Calvinistic 
theological beliefs. But don't you dare use that as an excuse to not share Christ with someone who's on their way to a place of eternal fire and torment. Revelation 19.2 says the judgments of God are true and righteous. There's no capacity in him to be unjust or to be unfair. Verse 6 says, since indeed God considers it just. It's, it's just that simple. That's just the point. He doesn't have to explain himself. I mean, we ought to have that very clearly cemented in our minds. This is certain. This is right. This is true. This is only just that God does this. In fact, you could say it's the only righteous way to deal with those who have sinned against God. It's the only righteous way. And the scriptures emphasize over and over the absolute righteousness of God in final judgment. And the righteousness of Christ is what? He is the judge that will carry out the judgment of God. In this, what will be a very public judgment before the whole universe of men and of angels... There won't be one person, mind you, that raises their hand and says, God, you're not fair. <laughs> this isn't right. They won't be able to at that point. Because God is holy. He is righteous in acquitting believers because of their sins that were paid for the, by the death of Christ on the cross, and they put their faith and trust in Christ, and so he acquitted their sins, he forgave them. You can't say, well, that's not fair that you forgive them, but you don't forgive them. No. And he will be declared righteous in damning the ungodly because they rejected the only way of forgiveness and they're left to pay the penalty for themselves for all eternity in hell. Because God's vengeance, beloved, is based on his character, on his righteousness, on who he is, on his holiness. You say, well, that just doesn't sound right. How am I supposed to understand that? I'm not saying you have to understand it. I'm not saying you have to say, well, well, that seems fair. No. I'm not saying you have to come to some conclusion philosophically that this reality of the horror of of hell is, is simple to understand. It's not. It's not. But it is the only just way for God to repay. It's only just. That's what he means. God believes it's just, therefore, that's the answer. God's vengeance is based on this simple principle. It's an inviolable spiritual law, really, that's bound up in his holy character and his holy nature. God must give back punishment that matches the crime, he doesn't grade on a curve. Colossians 3.25 says this, God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of persons. So he isn't more likely to be more kind or more gracious with, with certain sinners than others. 
No, all sinners are in the same boat. We're all sinners before a holy God. He's no respecter of persons. We're all guilty of sin. Sometimes we think in churches the person standing up here, you know, facing the audience is somehow on this holy platform or whatever. No. Yeah, it's raised up a couple feet so you can see. But other than that, I've always said there's no difference between you and whoever's standing up here other than the, the direction they're facing. We're all sinners and we all need the grace of God. And this spiritual law is bound up in this holy nature, his holy character. God must give back punishment that matches the crime. He's no respecter of persons. This has nothing to do with some fond affection that God may have for you. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, it's irrelevant. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. There is judgment without partiality. Turn over to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, because it's important that we understand how this applies in our lives practically. Because every day we're faced with situations that on the surface seem unfair. Would you agree? They seem unjust. They seem somehow like, wow, this, God wouldn't, should, wouldn't allow this to happen. But it happens. The Lord was confronted. Look at uh, Luke 13. Luke 13. And I'll just start reading there in verse 1. And this tells here of the Lord being confronted by some folks on a certain occasion. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, told Christ about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Jesus lived where in Nazareth, that's in Galilee, right? He's from here. Uh, Some of the Galilean people, what were they doing? They went down to the temple to offer sacrifices. They were actually obeying what the Old Testament instructed them to do. They went in to offer their sacrifices. And while they were offering their, their sacrifices, Pilate sent men into the temple with knives and slaughtered them. Killed them all. And so their blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. Now, obviously, this would be very disturbing to Jews. And they're asking the Lord this question. Well, when this happened, Lord, you know, these people aren't sinning. They're in your temple trying to do what you told them to do. What's going on here? They're obeying the Old Testament law. They're doing exactly what God told them to do. And so Jesus understands where they're going with this conversation. And he says to them in verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In our, in our logic, in our minds, in our natural state, you would answer that question what? Yeah. They must have done something wrong. Because they, they went in there and maybe, maybe they had evil in their heart. Maybe they didn't do it right. Maybe, no, it doesn't say that. They were doing exactly what God called them to do. But see, the Jews were looking at that and go, wait, what kind of God is this? I mean, these people were trying to worship God. And God slaughtered, or he allowed Pilate to slaughter them. 
They must have done something horrible for God to allow Pilate's soldiers to slice them to death. See, this isn't too far from where we think, how we think in the church. You know, we, we hear of a brother or sister who, oh, they went to the doctor and they got a, some horrible disease or some prognosis that's not too good. Where do we go? Well, I wonder what they're doing. Their spiritual life in private. I mean, that's how we think. Or someone loses a loved one. Oh, I wonder what they, you know, they, they must not be living for the Lord. Look at how God is. Because we're so focused on blessing, blessing, blessing all the time. 24-7, 365 days a year. That's what we think about because that's what people are telling us. But in reality, bad things happen in our lives. Do you understand where this affects how we view God? Well, how do you view God when something horrible happens in your life? Do you look up into the heavens and shake your fist at God and say, how dare you? If you do, you do not understand the, the holy nature of God. Especially as one of his children. And I would say Christians are the, the worst at this. They're the ones that are shaking the, the fist into the air. The other people, they don't even believe in God. But it's for the Christians who sacrifice and give and serve and, and then something bad happens in their life and, oh, God, what are you doing? You must not, you must have lost control. Something's going haywire in heaven. Look at the trials I'm going through. See, we, we don't for a second begin to believe that, no, God knows what we're going through and God has actually allowed them to happen in our lives and they're happening for his express holy purpose. That's a hard truth, but that is truth. And he has a purpose. And so he's answering these people. And he says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners because this happened to them? Look at what he says in verse 3. He answers his own question, by the way. Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, <laughs> you all likewise perish. No respecter of persons here. Verse 4, he brings up another example to kind of nail it down. He says, or those 18 on whom the, the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. There's a tower in Siloam and apparently fell over. Wasn't like the leaning tower of Pisa. Couldn't stand there very long. It fell over. And it says that it killed 18 people. Well, what do you think of that? He says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who stood around and weren't crushed by the tower? Is that what you're thinking? Is that how you judge someone's righteousness? He says in verse 5, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What was he saying? It's not a shell game here, folks. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. We all need our sins forgiven by the only person that can forgive them. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that God sent with the express purpose of coming, taking on a human body for 30 some years here on this earth, 
living a life of perfection in every way. Not once did Jesus think of sinning or sinning in any way. He was tempted in every way, as we are, the scripture says, yet without what? Without sin. So he rose above the sinfulness of mankind, even though he had a human body. And his body was just as human as ours. If you poke Jesus' finger, it would bleed. And it wouldn't be bleed some glowing, weird blood. It would bleed blood, just like we have blood. We don't worship the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't worship the physical body of Jesus Christ. We worship who he is. He's God. And he was here on earth for 30-some years. He lived a perfect life. And then the time came when he would give up that life willingly. Nobody killed Jesus. Nobody took his life. You know, we're coming up on Resurrection Sunday and Passion Week and all that. And so many times, people get the wrong picture of Christ. They go through Passion Week feeling sorry for poor Jesus who got taken advantage of. And, oh, he was betrayed by one of his guys and he ended up on a cross. He didn't do anything, the poor guy. No. That is the very express purpose he came. He came for that day to hang on that cross for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of all those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ. And when you do that, God is able to forgive your sin. And the reason we know it's true is because the Bible says that after they took him down from the cross, it says they put him in a grave, put him in a tomb, wrapped him up for burial. And guess what happened? (laughs) The third day, they came back. He wasn't there. He rose from the dead. You don't go to Jesus' grave burial place anymore. The, The tomb you can visit. But it's empty. All the other religions of the world have their leader in the tomb, and their bones are still there. Their bodies are still there. doesn't matter who it is. But Christ is the sole one who raised from the dead. Victorious, it says, over sin and death. And that is God kind of cashing the check. That's God saying, hey, you doubt that this man who came and lived among you for 30-some years was who I said he was? He was my son? Well, guess what? I'm going to raise him from the dead just to prove to you that he's exactly who he said. And then he, he was around hundreds of people after he was raised from the dead. So this isn't some fanciful story. This is a very real, factual account of what happened. And we we lose sight of the fact that the return of Christ, when he returns for his second coming, he won't be coming as the savior of the world. He'll be coming as the judge to carry out the righteous, just judgment of God upon all those who would not repent, who would not turn from their sin to the savior. This is the time of opportunity. This is the church age, the the age of grace, you could say. God is allowing people, he's calling people to believe on him, to believe on his son. And so he says, hey, these people who died, they weren't any different than you folks. Because everybody, the Bible says, is sinners. They're all sinners. And because there's an eternal universal judgment 
that comes from a just God, a holy God, and it's a just punishment, it's a just penalty for rebellion against God. The Bible says early on, sin deserves death and hell. Man is not some helpless creature. He's not some careless victim. Man is a chosen, purposeful, premeditated sinner. And our hearts are rebellious against a holy God. The threat of God's vengeance and divine judgment with this kind of severity is really a way that God uses to wake us up. To show us, you know what, you can't do this on your own. Remember what Romans 1 says. It says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They became fools who thought they were wise. They thought they had it all figured out. Why does God do this? He does it because he's just. Crimes committed against a holy God bring a penalty that meets the crime. And the worst crime is really when you rebel against God, when you think you know better than God. It's right for God to repay. What is it? It's the vengeance of God, full punishment. Why? Because it's right. Well, who is this group of people? When Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers. Verse 6, he says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So there's two groups here. And then down in verse 8 and 9, he explains, he says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Last week, we looked a little bit at the God's judgment on unbelievers. That is absolutely righteous. Well, who are these unbelievers? Well, there's two groups here. Two descriptions. It says those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also those who do not know God. Those who do not know God. There are people who do not know God. Some people say, well, that refers to Gentiles and Jews. Could be. I wouldn't build a strong argument on that. But knowing God is foundational. As a matter of fact, it's so foundational in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says this. If you want to know what eternal life is, if you want to know what the life after this life is like, here's what he says in John 17, 3. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for us. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you. Who is he talking about? He says, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So if eternal life comes to those who know God and who know the Son of God, then guess what? What happens to those who do not know God or do not know the Son of God? 
It's not eternal, it's eternal life, all right, but it's, it's in a place of destruction. It's a place of wrath. In Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah says, pour out your wrath. He's talking to God. He says, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you, on the families that do not call on your name. And you say, what a horrible thing to pray. But it's just, because God is a just God. The prophet is praying that God will pour out his wrath on nations that do not know God, that do not call on him. Now remember, Romans 1 tells us also, and we've read through this, we're not going to take time this morning, but the knowledge of God is available to everyone through creation. It says he's made it very plain. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to walk outside and look at all the beautiful creation that God has given us and say, well, I wonder where this stuff came from. It would take someone who has no sense to look at everything around us and conclude somehow that, well, it just came from nothing uh, out of the the slum of the slime of the, the, the swamp. The whole teaching of evolution. I mean, talk about a step of faith. That's not science. That borders on the ridiculous. And so Romans 1 says the knowledge of God was available to everyone. So this is not unfair what God is doing here. That's why the wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth of righteousness, who reject the truth. They hold it down. They suppress the truth. And Paul says they're without excuse because the truth was available through reason, through creation, through the moral law written in our hearts. There was enough. There was enough that God revealed rationally to the universe as a whole and morally in their heart and even through creation to lead even a pagan in the direction of God. They still have to come through Christ. They still have to bring, but you know what? It's, it's, it's important that you understand that when God gives people light, if they respond to the light, he gives them more light. You know, it's not like you're praying for somebody and they start asking you spiritual questions and then, you know, you, you see them responding. They're, wow, yeah, I, I really need, you know, and they start responding to the gospel. Maybe they're not saved yet. But it's highly, if God is sincerely calling them to salvation, they will be saved. They will be saved. They're not going to be able to stop halfway through and go, oh, you know what, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Because it's God who calls us to salvation. He uses us in the process, definitely. He doesn't drag us into heaven kicking and screaming, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. No. He changes our heart. He changes our desires. He transforms us, the Bible says. Psalm 9, verse 17 says, The nations forgot God. They forgot God. What happens to people who die and don't know God? I mean, some people want to believe that somehow these people, God's going to take care of them. You know, he'll give in and he's going to send them to heaven anyway because he is a loving God, right? No, he's not. He's not going to send them to heaven anyway. He cannot do that. 
Vengeance comes to those, it says, who do not know God. Which ought to be a good reminder for us, just to conclude here, to think, you know, how often do we proclaim the gospel? How often do we go out into a lost and dying world knowing the truth? We have the answer. We have put our faith in Christ. He's transformed our hearts. All of our sins have been paid for. And we're around multiple hundreds of people probably weekly that do not know Christ. And we never, ever even bring it up. We never even mention it. This should convict our hearts. This is how urgent it is for us to proclaim the gospel around the world. This is why we support missionaries. We don't support missionaries so, oh, they go, they do our job. No. We're still called to reach out to the local community, to those around the church, to those of our neighbors, those at work, and share the gospel with them. Tell them the truth. Fulfill the great commission that God has entrusted us with. Because there's people all over the place, especially in our area, that do not know God. They do not want to obey the gospel. They, they don't know. So pending judgment is awaiting them. And we're on the wall, and we see the judgment coming. And we're unwilling to even bring it up to them. Because, well, they may not like us anymore as a neighbor, or they may not talk to us. That's their problem, not yours. It will be your problem if you don't fulfill that calling, as we've seen in Ezekiel. If they die not knowing God, what awaits them is vengeance, retribution. People today in the world, unfortunately, rather than following the reasoning that God has given us creation, they look around rather than following the moral law that God has placed in all of our hearts. What do they do? They reject it, Romans 1 says. They don't want to hear God's truth. They suppress it, as we've mentioned about. They give, themselves, they give themselves up to sexuality, homosexuality, and the Bible says that leads to a reprobate mind. And so, the foundation is knowing God. My question to you this morning, do you know God? <laughs> do, you know God do you know God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand what it means to have a relationship with your God and your creator? He wants to know you. He wants you to come to him with your sin. You don't have to clean yourself up. That's not the purpose of this. You know, you don't have to, you know, sometimes people, I got to take a shower before I take a bath. You don't have to do that with God. You know, he cleans the entire thing. He, He takes the whole package just the way you are. And that's how he took his disciples. That's how he took everybody. Is there a cost in following Christ? Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Because you're denying your own desire. You're denying yourself. You're, you're, you're denying your own beliefs. Thinking that somehow the harder you work and the more church you come to and the more communions or baptisms you do, somehow that's going to earn God credit and you know you credit with God and you're going to be forgiven. No. No, there's only one way, and that is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would expressly beg you, if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul, what are you waiting for? 
You could walk out of here and be hit by a truck and die. If you do not know Christ, you will be ushered into all of eternity in a place of hell forever and ever. There's no second chance after that. I know it's difficult to hear, but we need to understand this is not a game. (laughs) This is very serious. I would call on you to turn to the Savior, turn to the cross, bring your sins to the cross, whatever they may be. God already knows what they are. Confess them. Say the same thing about your sins that God would say. These are an affront to your holy nature. These are wrong in your eyes. Lord, help me. Forgive me of my sins. I'm going to give up. I'm going to stop trying to work out my own righteousness because I don't have any. Be willing to admit that. Father, we pray this morning that you would do the work that needs to be done in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, these are not easy messages to preach nor to hear, I'm sure. But Father, they are what your word says without a doubt. And Lord, we pray that you would do that work of calling those who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, and in Christ alone for their salvation. Lord, that even this morning, that you would break through all the clutter that's in people's hearts and minds, even now, and go right to their heart. Who is Jesus Christ to you personally? Is he just somebody you worship? somebody you admire the only way that Christ will be your passageway to heaven is if you understand that he is the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through him and because of that you put your whole being in his hands you trust him fully and absolutely completely with your eternal soul for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. You, you trust Christ. You don't trust the church. You don't trust a pastor. You don't trust a relative or a priest. You trust the Lord Jesus Christ because the Bible says when you turn to him with a heart of repentance, with a heart that's broken over your sin and you're willing to give those sins to him, to place them at the cross and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. Help me in my sinful state to live for you. Forgive me of my sin. Transform me. Change me. Make me the kind of person that you desire me to be. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer that God needs to hear from your heart. You can pray that even now in the quietness of this moment. Cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I can't do this on my own. Forgive me, Lord, even as a believer, when I've raised my hand in the air and pointed my finger at you, how dare you allow this to happen in my life? Forgive me for questioning your holiness and your character and your goodness and your just righteousness. Lord, we know that nothing comes into the life of a believer, of a follower of Jesus Christ that God doesn't want there. As hard as it may be, you have a purpose and you have a plan to make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do that sometimes in very uncomfortable ways. 
But Lord, here today, we, we commit to give you permission, not that you need it, but we give you permission to do what you need to do in our lives, to make us more like your son each and every day. The time is short. Help us to have that motivation. Help us to have that boldness as we leave this building today out into a lost and dying world who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't know God, who doesn't know anything about the gospel. We do. I pray that we would be motivated to share with them the same message that saved our souls. To plead with them to turn to Christ for forgiveness. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our time here this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen.